Well, I want to welcome you all to the July Conservative Women's Network. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And this is a high podium. <laughs> I'm on my tiptoes now. <laughs> I want to thank you all for coming, and hello to the C-SPAN audience as well. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation, Bridget Wagner. Uh, we've been doing this together for 23 years, once a month. And uh, I'm just so grateful to Heritage for uh, hosting this with us. Also, I wanted to introduce Bridget Weisenberger from Heritage, who is co-hosting uh, this event with us today. She is Associate Director of Coalition Relations. Well, we have three great speakers today for our pro-life panel, Mallory Carroll, Catherine Glenn Foster, and Alexandra DeSanctis. And they have been women leaders in the fight for the right to life. First, Mallory will be speaking on the shift in the pro-life movement post-overturning Roe and how to ensure that we keep moving the country in a pro-life direction. Mallory serves as Vice President of Communications of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America Group responsible for managing the organization's communications team and developing the organization's strategy in corresponding with both the media and public grassroots. Mallory's profile stories about Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America have been in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, MSNBC, The New Yorker, and many more. Mallory also serves as a top spokeswoman for the organization featured on Fox News, many print publications, and many, many radio broadcasts. She's a graduate of Loyola University, Maryland, and joined the SBA Pro-Life America team in 2009 after position teaching English in France. <laughs> Next, Catherine Glenn Foster will speak about Dobbs and the future of pro-life advocacy. Catherine serves as president and CEO of Americans United for Life and has litigated on so many vital issues. Catherine's admitted to the bar in Virginia and Washington, D.C., as well as the Supreme Court, many U.S. Courts of Appeals and U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. She's authored and testified on numerous domestic, foreign, and international legislation and initiatives and has appeared before the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House of Representatives, and other federal and state bodies on multiple occasions. Before coming to Americans United for Life, Catherine spent seven years with Alliance Defending Freedom. Then she founded and managed a law practice which focused on respecting the sanctity of human life and supporting like-minded organizations. She earned her Juris Doctor, her law degree at Georgetown University Law Center, a master's in French, from the University of South Florida, and a BA in history and French from Barry College. Our third speaker, Alexandria DeSanctis, will be speaking on her new book. Do you have it there? Could you hold it up? I don't. I actually uh, brought okay. one. <laughs> Sorry. It's a great book. She co-authored with Ryan T. Anderson. It's called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. She'll be discussing how the pro-life movement can make the best case against abortion by explaining that it's harmed every aspect of our society. Alexandra is a staff writer at the National Review and regularly publishes reports and commentary for both the National Review print magazine and National Review online. She's hosted many National Review podcasts, 
speaks often on campus colleges, uh, campus, campus, college campuses as, and conferences. Yesterday she spoke at a Young America's Foundation high school conference along with Carolyn Cree uh, here from our staff and at many conservative events across the country. Her work's been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, the Washington Examiner, America Magazine, and the Human Life Review. She's a 2016 graduate of the University of Notre Dame. Following today's speakers and Q&A, after that, we hope you'll join us in the foyer outside for some lunch. So now please join me in welcoming today's pro-life panel. Thank you so much. Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. It's such a pleasure to, to be here and join you, and especially to be on this panel with women I so much admire. Catherine, I didn't realize we had the French connection going. Um, <clears throat> this is also a really special audience for me because I know many of you are interns in the pro-life and conservative movement this summer in DC, and I started exactly where you are. Um, back in 2009 at what was then called the Susan B. Anthony List. Um, I was doing your most basic intern things, you know, um, answering the phone, making fresh cups of coffee. This was before K-Cups and Nespresso. Um, <laughs> writing some blog posts. Also cold calling the New York Times eventually. Is anyone doing that this summer? Um, no? <laughs> well, I was talking to them about our pro-life political campaigns and how and why we believe that pro-life is a winning issue and how we were intending to engage voters on this in key elections in order to impact the bottom line and to elect pro-life champions and then work with them once they were in office to pass life-saving law and policy. And it's really profound, you know, as I was just thinking about what to say to you guys, uh, reflecting back on that time as an intern and seeing how much has changed um, in the 13 years that I've been uh, an advocate for life in Washington, D.C. And of course, the pro-life movement, though, is, is decades old, right? Um, hundreds of thousands of Americans have been working in various ways across the movement to get us to this point. And one key contribution that I believe uh, Susan B. Anthony has made, and something that I hope to encourage you all to continue in the future, is to engage politically, um, to keep engaging politically in the post-Dobbs era. So for 50 years, we marched, we prayed, we began crisis pregnancy centers to serve women in their communities. Um, all of that is vital and we wouldn't be here without it. Um, but like every other successful human rights battle, there had to be a change in law and policy. And that um, was what we set out to do at Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, was to be the political arm of the pro-life movement. And for the last 10 years, very specifically being focused on electing a pro-life president, a pro-life Senate, all for the purposes of um, affecting the Supreme Court to uh, see through the nomination and confirmation of justices such as those who are signed on to Justice Alito's majority opinion, official majority opinion. Um, and. And that's what we set out to do using the tools of democracy and it, and it actually happened. And I think it's incredible. I think so many of us in the pro-life movement, we are still reeling um, from the Dobbs decision. I know for my part, every time I see Roe versus Wade overturned on the television, you know, I still kind of catch my breath and I'm thinking, whoa, that really happened. Um, but we absolutely can't sit back at this point. Um, a lot of 
my colleagues and leaders in the pro-life movement have been quoting Winston Churchill recently, and I, I love this quote. Um, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And I think that that is very profound. It's more important than ever to stay engaged in the pro-life movement and in politics in particular, right? Because by overturning Roe, the court just took its thumb off the scale. And now at long last, we the people, uh, through our elected representatives, we can set law and policy that protect women and children. So since Dobbs, 12 states with another six um, soon to join them have taken action to protect unborn children either entire throughout the duration of pregnancy or nearly throughout the duration of pregnancy, impacting um, an estimated 150,000 abortions every year, um, potential lives saved, which is incredible. Um, but this is a Democratic Republic of states, right? Some states are going in the opposite direction um, to create so-called sanctuaries for abortion that are not just places where women can travel from, from out of state to obtain abortions, but where women can be brought to by pimps and traffickers uh, where they are also enjoying these alleged safe havens. And we also have, uh, you know, just a, a few blocks away, Democrats in Congress pushing for a fourth vote on the failed but very beautifully named Women's Health Protection Act. And we cannot let our fellow Americans uh, fall for this lie that that law is about protecting women's health. It's very deceptively named. It's actually worse than the status quo of Roe because not only would it return us to abortion on demand being the law of the land paid for by taxpayers with as little regulation as possible, but it would it's incredibly undemocratic. It would prevent future lawmakers, state and federal, from passing laws that protect life. So we're going to need very strong federal lawmakers to push back on that agenda here in Washington. And what's more, many people agree, myself included, um, the only way we're going to protect babies in those hardcore pro-abortion states in the near term is going to be through federal action, protecting babies past a certain point in gestation. That's the only way we're going to save children in New York, California, my home state of Maryland, Illinois. Um, and these are the states where more than 56% of abortions are occurring and will continue to occur. So, you know, in order to reach the majority of these babies that are suffering and dying from abortion, we need federal action. And back in the pro-life states, not only are the pro-life laws and the pro-life lawmakers who are championing them going to need to be supported year after year, election after election, but we need more resources, right, for moms and for babies um, who are now welcoming unplanned, unexpected children um, in especially the states, those the 16 that I mentioned or 18 that I mentioned that are being most aggressive, most ambitious to protect life. And here's an area where governors, pro-life governors, are taking incredible steps forward really creatively, finding um, new ways to ensure that moms and, and families have the resources that they need to uh, choose life um, in the best circumstance. And, and Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, he's a really great example here. Um, his state, of course, was at the heart of the challenge to Roe in the Dobbs case, and he's been exemplary signing into law uh, two new bills that, uh, that support pro-life pregnancy centers, including one that is a tax credit for, do for donations to pregnancy centers. So encouraging that support from the community to assist moms and families in need.
14 states have offered uh, alternatives to abortion programs, including Texas, and this went completely unreported. Um, well, maybe not by Alexandra, <laughs> but but that they Texas passed uh, when they passed their Heartbeat Protection Act. They also funded, authorized a hundred million dollars of funding um, for women and children in Texas. Many of those dollars have been authorized to pregnancy centers, which for decades we know have been offering free care to moms and families, material and financial assistance medical care, sometimes housing if they're maternity homes, parenting classes, job training, everything that a struggling mom or dad might need to uh, make that situation easier when they're um, taking care of new life. And that's all provided by members of their local community. So we know that these centers, you know, on a cultural level and financial level and political and policy is wise as well, they need our support more than ever. Since the leaked draft opinion, there's been more than 40 incidents of violence against these non-political places. Um, everything from firebombing to windows being smashed, you name it, vandalism. Um, and we need uh, elected officials at every level speaking out against that violence. So in closing, because uh, I want to hear from these other ladies, the road ahead is going to be bumpy and winding. But what I want you to take away from this is that there is a road, right? It did not end June 24th outside the court. Um, there's so much more work to be done in the states and in Congress and in our communities, but it's gonna be worth it to have America's future, America's children welcomed and protected under the law. So thank you and I look forward to the Q&A later. Well, like Mallory, I am just so excited to be here with all of you today. Thank you for um, for having us here, and I'm just delighted to be speaking with um, with this crowd of so many young people, because as you said, the road is just beginning. Our workload has just we, we were trying to on a on a webinar earlier this morning. We were trying to figure out what the term is for like you know you have tripled, you have quadrupled, quintupled. I can get up to about nine, um, like. 50 times? I have no idea. But whatever that number is, or however you say it, that's what has just happened. And so in a lot of ways, it's going to be your generation that carries the ball forward. Um, you know, and when it comes to voting and getting the right people in office, uh, I'm a lawyer. My organization is the one that, you know, writes all these laws that get passed. Um, so, you know, and when it comes to going and testifying for those laws and, um, and getting that um, that good policy advanced um, when it comes to sharing the truth about abortion and abortion law, um, which the mainstream media does not always do spectacularly well. And so that's why we uh, really rely upon you <laughs> and people like you who, um, who just have such clarity of vision. Um, but also because, you know, I think when you when you look across the spectrum of a life, right, um, there are certain moments that stand out. There's um, there's just times when the American story truly changes over the course of our lives, and for most of us, it's just a couple of few times in our life. Um, Berlin Wall, 1989. I, I wasn't really old enough to really remember that. A lot of you weren't even here yet, but that would be one of those times, right? Berlin Wall, September 11th attacks, um, the COVID pandemic over the last two years. We're all going to remember that for a long time to come. 
Um, but on June 24th, we had another one of those moments. And it was the day that Roe finally fell, the day that Roe was finally um, just relegated, tossed out on the ash heap of history. After nearly 50 years of shoring up this regime of constitutionalized abortion, and after 50 years with the unspeakably tragic loss of 60 million human lives. Justice Samuel Alito wrote for the court, we hold that Roe must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Abortion, the court declared, is critically different from any other right that this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty because it destroys what Roe and Casey call uh, fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. Um, that quote is critical, and he repeats that idea five times in that opinion, just emphasizing abortion is different, other substantive due process rights that you, know, you may have heard about in the media recently that people are saying may be at risk. Abortion is different because it takes a life. There's been a lot of misconceptions, um, both before and after the Dobbs decision. Hopefully we can get into some of those during Q&A. Um, but I'm sure you'll always remember where you were um, when you heard about the outcome in Dobbs, when you heard the news that the court had finally submitted its, its resignation as the National Abortion Control Board and returned the right to value and protect life to the American people where it always belonged. Uh, I was in my kitchen. I was making breakfast for my three kids. Um, I was planning a busy day at the office uh, here in D.C., uh, but when I saw the court's announcement, I just, I instantly flashed back um, to the child that I lost to abortion many years ago um, and the lies that the abortion business told me to persuade me to, um, to make that awful decision. Um, and then I said a prayer of deep gratitude for my coworkers, my co-laborers, uh, for life on the staff of Americans United for Life, um, my co-laborers here on the stage, and, um, and everyone throughout the pro-life movement, the millions upon millions upon millions of people who for decades have lived a culture of life in whatever way, um, maybe they're lawyers, maybe they're communicators or reporters, maybe they're doctors, maybe they, maybe they pray, maybe they sidewalk counsel, no matter what you do, um, even just you know being there for that young woman or young man in your life who you find out is facing an unexpected pregnancy. It's critical. Every single um, piece of the puzzle is critical in building a culture, a culture of life. And there are just untold numbers of, uh, of deeply devoted lawmakers and policy advocates and supporters who for 50 years refused to accept the verdict of those small number of black-robed justices that, um, that women must have the right to destroy the child in the womb in order to achieve equality. What our own Supreme Court told us in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And I'm pretty sure that the people here in this room know a little bit better than that. You know, we do not have to have that to be equal in our society. Um, but we do have millions of Americans who are just incredulously asking, what just happened? Um, but the downfall of Roe didn't just happen. Right, Because many years ago, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, he lamented that the edifice of abortion that the court had erected seemingly overnight may have to be torn down door jam by door jam. And he thought, he, he worried, 
may be never toppled over. The pro-life movement, we took his words as a moral challenge, and we won hard-fought battles in the court over and over. Um, and that reduced Roe to that Potemkin facade that, um, that the court finally pushed over just a couple of weeks ago. That abortion right that was proclaimed fundamental in Roe, it narrowly escaped being overruled 19 years later in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, emerging as a mere liberty interest, subject to the state's authority to regulate it like any other medical procedure. Um, but all throughout these last 50 years, there's been a case on abortion before the court, on average every two, two and a half years or so. And in each of those cases, the court um, could have overturned Roe. They did revisit the abortion issue directly, not talking about like First Amendment rights, free speech rights relating to abortion, you know, pregnancy centers like the NIFLA case out of California, direct abortion cases. And over and over for 50 years, we had legal scholars, pro-life and pro-choice, even the ones who supported abortion rights. They told us for you know the 49 years of Roe, because we didn't let it get to 50. Um, for 49 years, they said, this is not um, constitutionally sound. This is not based in our nation's history, in our nation's tradition. It's not based in our constitution. It was wrongly decided, and it needs to return to the people. And so along the way, we secured victory after victory in the Supreme Court for the lives of both women and children, ensuring that states could outlaw unlicensed back alley abortionists, that, that states could refrain from um, paying for elective abortions with taxpayer dollars, that states could insist on the reporting of abortion data that documents just how risky the procedure is, and that states could mandate that abortion doctors provide basic informed consent to their patients on what abortion really does to a vulnerable human being in utero. Now, as Roe was being torn down, the pro-life movement was rebuilding that system of strong legal and community protections for women facing abortion that the Supreme Court had just nullified in one fell swoop. Now, after Casey, after 1992, more victories came, and most notably, a ringing affirmation from the court that some abortion procedures were too barbaric, that's their word, to, per to permit. Criticism of Roe mounted, both from the court's own justices and from many appeals court judges. And meanwhile, the abortion rate dropped precipitously, year after year, to the point where, today, a woman is only as likely to make that desperate choice as she was in 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade struck down those protective laws in all 50 states, including uh, New York, including the states where, uh, where they were performing abortions already, even they had more protective laws than Roe allowed for. And so here we are, um, essentially, right back at the beginning. As it was before Roe, some states will continue regimes of abortion on demand and pretend that they're safeguarding some sacred right. Um, other states are going to be enabled to implement strongly protective laws outlawing that practice and providing help and support to the mothers who are facing unexpected pregnancies. Where abortion activists seek to enshrine a so-called right to abortion in state law or impose it from the benches of state judges, we and our partners in the pro-life movement, we're going to be there to fight for life. Because Roe's reversal is no mic drop moment. No one's talking about taking a victory lap and just walking off into the sunset. After Roe, our work is far from done. We're going to keep defending human life until every precious human being is welcomed in life and protected in law, as we've affirmed for 51 years now. 
Uh, we at AUL are advancing the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And we we're experiencing this moment, this, um, this unforgettable, this historic moment because of the result of the decades long work of many, many thousands, tens of thousands, millions of heroic Americans in all three realms. Culture, which both shapes and is shaped by the law, that's been moving towards rejecting abortion and embracing life for decades now. The law of abortion has at last belatedly caught up with the will of the American people in the Dobbs decision. And policy is simply the will of the people um, expressed through the state and federal policymakers, the lawmakers that they elect. And policy has led the way in building a culture of life with hundreds of pro-life bills passed in just the last 10 years alone. After Roe saving every innocent human life and protecting all women from predatory abortion businesses, it suddenly moved into the realm of the possible. Consider this. After Roe, states have the constitutional authority to outlaw abortion at any stage of life, including for the youngest and most vulnerable. No longer will lawmakers be able to duck and cover on the abortion question, claiming that they're personally opposed to abortion, but that their hands are tied because of Roe. Every federal and state lawmaker will be directly accountable to the people who elected them for the decisions they make, the policies they enact, or not, to protect life. And that is going to be a very good thing for the American body politic. In the wake of Roe, a thousand flowers will bloom to protect life. Mothers are going to receive care from that constellation of pro-life pregnancy centers that currently outnumber abortion facilities five to one. States will ensure that alternatives to abortion are well-funded and promoted, and infants will be welcomed and cherished in life as they should be. Um, to help lawmakers do that, we at AUL, we're publishing a battle plan for life. It's on our website right now to help lawmakers um, at the federal and state level figure out what's next. What's the next step in protecting life? And this can be done also, as you said, at the federal level, because after Roe, no longer is there not any federal constitutional right to elective abortion. There's no federal interest in elective abortion. In fact, we've seen a slew of statutes passed by Congress since Roe that have prohibited taxpayer funding for elective abortion, prevented federal facilities from being used for abortions, and stopped federal taxpayer dollars from promoting abortion at home and abroad. In fact, despite the protestations of the current administration, after Roe, the policy of the United States expressed in our law and in our administrative regulations, it's to protect life and to discourage abortion. It is a pro-life policy. Neither the Constitution nor federal statutes and regulations provide for a policy of protecting, funding, or supporting abortion. And that opens up a whole host of opportunities at the federal level. But we do need to think differently now about what it means to have a culture of life. Because as critically important as pro-life laws are, more is needed. And so in addition to what we've done for the last years, where we rank all the states on how pro-life their laws are, we are now also going in and analyzing a state's pro-life culture. How pro-life is that state's culture? How strongly are its citizens determined to provide the means and the tools to equip women to succeed and to embrace the lives that they bear? So we're analyzing all these different elements of the state's culture of life, including the number of pro-life pregnancy centers, how support for these centers is reflected in the state's funding choices, how well the state integrates women into the workforce and what protections it provides there, um, what the birth rate is, and other factors.
Um, but we need to be we need to be talking about what it means to be wholeheartedly pro-life and supporting and protecting all members of the human family. We look forward and to the day and we strive for that day when all are welcomed throughout life and protected in law. We've advocated as a movement and, and here at AUL for, for the human right to life for 50 years now. We were at the Supreme Court in every case since and including Roe v. Wade. Um, and with the overturning of Roe, we're gonna continue to advocate um, at both the federal and the state levels across every branch of government for a truly comprehensive and holistic understanding and upholding of the human right to life for every mother and father for every preborn child, and for every American in every community across our nation, so that ours may truly be a future full of hope. Thank you. All right, well, I'm very grateful uh, for the invitation to be here. It's great to be with all of you and to be on stage with um, two heroes of the, the pro-life movement. Um, I'm especially embarrassed to have been caught without a copy of my book. Um, first of all, because it's cool to hold up a copy of your book, but second, because my publisher is here, and so I'm afraid I'm gonna get in trouble. Uh, but I'll use the excuse that it's my, my first book ever, and so I'm not really used to being an author yet. It came out last week, um, so I'll get there. But I'll use my, my time instead to entice you to buy the book. Um, it is I, essentially Ryan Anderson, my co-author, and I wrote it, um, hoping and praying that it would come out in a post-Roe America, and it did. Three, three or four days, I guess, after Roe was overturned, our book came out. Um, and we wrote it as a, a pro-life roadmap for where do we go from here and how does every pro-life person get involved in this fight? Where, what, how can we give people the tools um, to make the case against abortion? Um, so that's sort of the why of this book. Um, we thought we thought it was the, the moment in history that we needed something like this, and there have been books about abortion before, um, but to my my knowledge, there hasn't been a book or a case made um, a really thorough, comprehensive case as to how abortion harms everything, uh, and I think that's what really makes it a unique argument, and what I want to kind of impress on all of you today, with just my my few minutes here. Um, the case against abortion has to go beyond the fact that it kills the unborn child. And that is, of course, the, the foundational, fundamental harm of abortion. That's where the evil begins. That's a grave moral wrong. Um, but we have to be able to go beyond that. And that's sort of the argument of the book, right? If, if this is a, a, an evil act that takes the life of a human being, and if we have for almost 50 years um, you know, legally permitted this act, if our society has come to, to accept it, and if you know, even after Roe is going to continue happening, how could that not be harmful to every single member of the society? Right? How could we not all suffer as a result of living in a society that permits lethal violence as, as some kind of solution? Right, This was pitched as a solution, something that would make our society better, would make women better off. Um, and it hasn't been that at all. Of course, it's it's gravely wrong, but it also hasn't solved any problems. And it's I, we were hard pressed in writing the book to find any example of something that it's made better. Um, so that's why this book and why now. The argument of the book, we kind of go through the different aspects of society that have been harmed by abortion in addition to the unborn child. So I'll take you through a few of those, the points that we make. Um, our first chapter is very basically, you know, the unborn child is killed by abortion, right? And so we rebut the, all the various silly pro-abortion arguments. You know, this is just a clump of cells. No, in fact, it's a biologically speaking, a unique human being, a living human being. Um, the, the silly moral argument that this might be a human being, but not a human person, not somebody who deserves the respect of our laws. So we rebut that point. We say all, all human beings are, are you know, uh, 
creatures with dignity uh, deserve our respect and deserve the protection of our laws. No good or just government um, can, can fail to protect, at the very least, the lives of the innocent. Um, so that's our first chapter, and it's quite lengthy and philosophical, thanks to my co-author. Um, but from there, <laughs> from there, I have to make fun of him, even when he's not here. Um, the, the second chapter is about women. Um, and this chapter, I think, is especially crucial because the, the best argument for abortion, in my view, that still fails, but the best argument is uh, women suffer and, and face all kinds of difficult situations, and therefore they need abortion, right? Abortion somehow makes women better off, helps them to be equal to men, helps them to be free. Um, that's the best case. Uh, and we, we walk through why it fails and why, why abortion has not made women better off. And so we address two sets of harms. Um, the first is the harm to women who've had abortions. And this is something Catherine can speak to um, quite a bit and, and has written about. And we actually quote her, her story in our book. Um, it harms women. And we're told women are always better off when they get an abortion. Women never regret their abortions. This is simply not true. And all the data to the contrary, the stories to the contrary, are just ignored or dismissed or even attacked by supporters of abortion because they don't want to reckon with the fact that actually many women do suffer as a result of having an abortion. That could include physical complications, you know, immediate physical complications, long-term physical problems with future pregnancies or um, increased risk, risk of breast cancer. Um, for later term abortions. And then we talk about psychological complications and, and side effects. Women who experience um, elevated rates of depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, even suicide as a result of having had an abortion. Um, and these women are, are, like I said, just cast aside by the pro-abortion movement because they undercut the argument that abortion is always a solution for women. Um, but then secondly, we make the point that abortion and a, a pro-abortion society is actually bad for all women, um, even women who haven't had abortions, in the sense that uh, abortion takes the male body as the norm, right? The, it, it says that there's something wrong or dysfunctional about the fact that a woman can become pregnant, and so abortion is this kind of nice, easy solution so that women's bodies can function like men, they can just walk away from sex the way men can, they can go back to the workplace easily, they can participate in life on equal footing. Uh, but what this argument misses is that abortion is an act of lethal violence against her own child, right? And so a woman's not actually free if the solution offered to any set of problems is uh, to turn her child into her enemy and to enact violence against that child. That's not actually a solution of any kind. Um, so in that way, it, uh, abortion has created, I think, a, a culture that's even more inhospitable to women than it was prior to Roe. Um, our, our third chapter, we talk a bit about what we call lethal discrimination in the womb. So um, abortions that target uh, baby girls because they're not baby boys, um, abortions that target disabled babies or babies that are, are diagnosed with um, disabilities or Down syndrome in the womb, oftentimes inaccurately. Um, we, that's another place where we quote you, actually, based on your experience with that um, a false diagnosis, which happens a lot. And people choose abortion based on these false diagnosis, diagnoses of disabilities. Um, but even if the diagnosis is correct, right, what kind of society are we if we treat disease by exterminating human beings, right? Is it actually a solution to Down syndrome to kill people with Down syndrome? Of course not. That doesn't solve anything. Um, and then we talk about the elevated rates of abortion in non-white communities and how uh, the left really points to this as some kind of victory, right? They say, let's build all our abortion clinics in uh, you know, low-income or minority communities that's great for these people. It's not, right? If, if it's true that these people are accessing abortion at higher rates, that's a problem. We should help these people, help everybody, you know, regardless of their, their race or their socioeconomic status, welcome life. And we shouldn't celebrate the fact that some populations access abortion at a higher rate. Um, 
our, our fourth chapter focuses on medicine. And here we talk about how the kind of lie that abortion is healthcare has really infiltrated everything, every aspect of our medical system, right? If, if an act of violence, this medically unnecessary act, is now considered to be essential women's health care, how could that be good for our doctors or our medical system, right? Doctors are now treated as technicians for hire, essentially, rather than professionals, because they're being commandeered into performing this, this act of violence that is not uh, medically necessary. Um, and there's, we get into a bit of the history of, of the um, medical association's involvement in pro-abortion lobbying and, and how that's continued to this day. Uh, and then our final three chapters talk about law, politics, and culture, which are very expansive. And I won't get into all the details, but we, we critique Roe v. Wade and, and the history, which Catherine's laid out very successfully. We talk about how this has affected our politics, um, how the Democratic Party has become, become corrupted by its intense pro-abortion stand. Right? Think about how much better off we would all be if both of our political parties rejected violence against the child in the womb. Right? If we had two parties, and I would still be a conservative for other reasons, uh, but that would be a, a big step forward for our country if we had two political parties committed to defending all innocent human life. Um, and then finally, in our, our chapter on culture, we touch on the corruption of the media, um, Hollywood's pro-abortion bias and how that affects viewers and observers and kind of changes hearts and minds without people realizing it, um, and the, the bias of big business, which unfortunately has become even worse since we wrote and published the book. Um, corporations have been coming out in droves to promise to, to pay for abortion-related travel. There's no comparable promise to pay for adoption-related travel. There's no promise to, to add more money to maternity leave or childcare, right? It's all focused on abortion, which I think reinforces the kind of anti-woman element of abortion. Um, so the point of all of this is we have to make the case now, right? And as, as my two fellow speakers have said already, we're at a, a real turning point here. Um, and I think everybody, even if you're not working in the pro-life movement, has a responsibility to make the case against abortion, right? And that's going to take different forms depending on your state in life and where you are. And maybe it's volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center or donating to one or whatever else it might be. But I think we all have the same responsibility to learn the facts about abortion and to be able to go beyond just the harm to the unborn child. Start there always. But be able to, to tell your neighbors, um, tell people who disagree with you, abortion's bad for you too, right? This is not a sit on the sidelines issue. Um, this is not something that lawmakers can get away with saying, oh, it's just a state issue now, or I, I don't really have an opinion. You know, I, It's not as important as foreign policy. That's not the kind of issue that it is. Um, and so that's kind of the, the idea of our book is to, to equip readers to, to make that case. statements from these three leaders. Um, it's a time of celebration, as you said, but as Churchill quotes, at the, the end of the beginning only, the road is long. Well, we have a little bit of time uh, for questions before we lose C-SPAN. We have two uh, loose center staffers here, Caroline and Lindsay, holding mics. I would ask you to wait until you have the mic to speak so that C-SPAN can get it. Questions, and if you'll designate which of the ladies, uh, we don't really have time for all three to answer, so decide which one you want to answer your question. Yes, ma'am, here's a mic. Hi, I, I can't, unfortunately I can't see the, is it Alexandria? Alexandria, yes. yeah. Thank you. Um, most recently they had a, a case of a 10-year-old who uh, was seeking an abortion in a different state, and I think that's probably the only thing your book didn't talk about and that and, and as pro-life as i am and i know it's extremely rare statistically but it still does happen 
And that is the only area that I have a have difficulty explaining. I don't know that there's any way to make a ten year old comfortable. Yeah. Having a baby under those circumstances. How do you talk someone through that? How do you defend that, particularly under the circumstance of having been violated already? Yeah. I mean, obviously that child is never going to be okay, but how, how, what, what, what are your suggestions for that? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Um, so I, I think you're referring to the story of a 10 year old having been raped and, and seeking an abortion, right? Um, so as you say, of course, very uncommon, but horrific. Um, we do. We don't touch on that specific example in the book, but we do talk about um, the rape exception because I think this is where you, the pro-abortion case is quite strong. Um, but ultimately, I think it fails because it doesn't. It doesn't solve that child's problem or a woman who's been raped's problem to then turn around and act violence on her child. And it isn't the fault of her child that that evil thing happened to her, right? Um, and so, as much as it might be nice to kind of wave a magic wand and get that person out of that situation. Um, it actually wouldn't be compassionate to her either or to her child to then suggest that abortion is a solution, um, even though it kind of seems like a, a reverse button. It really isn't. It's just a second act of violence. Um, so I think that's a very difficult issue to talk about as pro-lifers, but we shouldn't be afraid of it, um, especially if we're thinking about this from the framework of both the mother and the child and what's best for both of them. Catherine, you look like you want to give a quick answer to that. Yeah. Uh, maybe just briefly, yeah. Um, so when it comes to to rape, you know, far too many uh, American women have experienced this, first of all. Um, it is a violence against women, but we need to get to the heart of that violence, and we need to eradicate that violence. Both um, rape and abortion stem from that same culture of violence and from the demeaning of women. So that is the core problem here that we need to um, that we need to be fixing. Um, you know, abortion is not a solution to rape. It just heaps violence upon violence. And in fact, um, I, I was at Georgetown with a, a woman who was in fact raped and wrote her law review article on, um, on the state of the law on parental rights of the rapist and how we need to be addressing those concerns. Now, some of the laws have changed in the years since, but, um, but that, that's a, a big part of it. Now, um, when we talk about the rape exception, then that actually diminishes the viewpoint and the desires um, of those women who are raped, but still recognize um, women who are raped, women who are sex trafficked. Many of them do want to keep their child. They recognize that that child is their child, um, that it's part of them too, and that you know the the parentage, the 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 paternal part of that. Um, isn't that child's future. Um, but then their experience is demeaned and lessened when we just say, oh, how about a rape exception, you know? Um, and, and then in a side note, when we're talking about a 10-year-old, if there's, you know, a threat to her life, then that's a separate issue that's taken care of that's not, you know, in the context of an abortion. Um, but otherwise, I think the rape exception, um, the rape discussion kind of covers it. Thank you. Question over here? Here. And if you'd give your name and affiliation, please. Hi, my name is Felice Lagarde. I'm actually a summer intern at the Claire Booth Lee Center for Conservative Women. And I also have a question for Alexandra. So you mentioned the many facets of society that are affected by abortion. And 
I was wondering if you would say that abortion is the root of all of these social and economic issues that America is facing, or if abortion is an offspring of a deeper issue that's actually the root of the matter. Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. And I think we, in the book, we kind of argue that it's both in different ways, and it's in some ways it's one, and in some ways it's another. Um, I think it's the root of a, a very flawed mindset about women that contributes to other problems that we see. Um, for example, the, the corporate culture that suggests, you know, that the male is the ideal and women have to be able to get back to work immediately and there's no maternity leave is this kind of inconvenience. That kind of, that stems from the fact that abortion is available and, and, you know, popular and a widely expected choice. And so I think in that way, that's sort of a root of the problem. But I also think abortion is a symptom of the sexual revolution mindset, right? And we can't actually fix the fact that people want abortion until we get back to the fact that sex is supposed to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage and therefore committed to each other and, and committed to children. Um, and so I think abortion kind of springs out of this mindset that we're all just kind of these autonomous individuals going around defining our reality and doing whatever we want. And abortion is just kind of like this helpful tool in that context to, to accomplish that. Um, so I guess, yeah, both, a, a bit of both. Thank you. Maybe one of the gentlemen, a potential father. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Isaac Bakra from the Heritage Foundation. Um, I had a question for you, uh, Catherine, uh, about the, the law related on the federal level to abortion policy going forward. Um, specifically, there's some conservatives, uh, Mike Pence, for example, has stated that he is in favor of an all-out ban on abortion on the federal level. Um, in addition to the pro-life issue, one of the uh, important issues for conservatives is federalism and concerns about the structure of our government. And so um, there's a lot of concern within the conservative movement about abandoning those principles for prohibitions on abortion on the federal level. Uh, what would you say are answers and solutions on the federal level to abortion problems in the United States going forward post-Roe? Yeah, um, so I'm a big fan of federalism. I'm a member of, you know, federalism groups. Um, however, when it comes to human rights, that shouldn't be a state-by-state -state issue. Um, you know, as President Lincoln said, we're going to become all one thing or all the other. You don't see states where women can vote and states where women can't. Um, I think we're all pretty united on that now, but nonetheless, um, you know, that's not a dividing issue. We don't have states where, you know, some groups of people are human beings and others aren't. In fact, we kind of fought a war over that. So that's the same kind of issue that we're talking about here. We will eventually get to the point, I think, where I hope, where um, across the board, we recognize that every single human being, no matter their size, no matter their location, their, you know, any other aspect or attribute, no matter, you know, um, uh, there any disability or any other um, any other way you can define or uh, or try to detract from their human status as we've seen um, tragically for so many um, hundreds thousands of years now where we all are human beings with equal human rights um, you know I, I think it needs to be an across-the-board solution and so um, you know that could come through federal law that may be a, a starting point, federal policy, certainly. I co-authored with, uh, with Josh Craddock and Chad Pecknold um, the Lincoln proposal, which um, advocates for policy that the next pro-life administration could, um, could pursue. 
Um, but also, I think ultimately we need to be working towards um, a, a pro-life amendment, a constitutional amendment that's going to, across the board, protect human life um, and okay. settle that question. Mallory, a quick answer to this because our C-SPAN time is almost up. Real quick, I'll just say that um, there are scholars, legal scholars here in this very building at Heritage who have been making the argument that there um, is constitutional uh, pathways to federal action, gestational limits on abortion, whether that's through the 14th Amendment or through the Commerce Clause, that there is a there is jurisdiction for Congress to protect life um, nationwide. Also, that um, all, all of our pro-life lawmakers have already voted several times on gestational limits on abortion and, and federal legislation. So to back, back take step back from that position, um, now that the, the situation with the court has changed would be um, completely inconsistent with views that they've taken in the past and votes that they've taken in the past. Thank you so much. Mallory, Catherine, Alexander, what an excellent presentation. Thank you so much. You are three courageous ladies, and I have something special for you. This is a quote, a cup, our, our limited edition coffee mug with the Claire Booth Luce quote, courage is the ladder on which all the other virtues mount. That's beautiful. Aww, thank you. And I have one more item. My publisher, too, Alexander. But see, I've been at this a little bit longer, so I want to give you a <laughs> copy of my book that uh, we published uh, not too many months ago, How to Raise a Conservative Daughter, with many thanks to uh, Tom Spence and Regnery. And uh, Beautiful. just thank, thank you, you all. Thank you all for coming. What a great presentation. And we've got a great uh, heritage lunch outside.